We are in a little series here on the book of Psalms. We're going to spend some time this summer do, doing some work in the what's called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So the wisdom literature in the Old Testament begins with Job and ends with the Song of Solomon. And so the Psalms are songs or poems written, and they tend to be thought of as like the song book of the Old Testament. And so we'll spend a few more weeks here before we get into the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes for the summer. So we're looking at Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. And you might notice in your Bibles, if you don't have one, it'd be, you'll be helped by having one in front of you. There's one in the pew um, or the chair in front of you. Uh, it starts out when at, before you get to Psalm 42, it says book two. And so the Psalms are divided into five different books. And that the structure was really meant to follow the Pentateuch or the five uh, books of the law, the first five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So we have a bit of a break from Psalm 41 into Psalm 42, and we're in book two. And originally, Psalm 42 was one psalm. It wasn't divided into two. And you can see it when you look at the chorus that we'll talk about in a minute that occurs in verse 5 and verse 11 and then in Psalm 43, verse 5. So let's, uh, as you look at that, let's stand together and we'll read these two psalms together and have a moment of reflection. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping a festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and the Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with a deadly wound in my bones? My adversaries taunt me. And they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God to go to God, my to God, my exceeding joy And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? 
hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated as we take a few moments to reflect on God's word. Every Sunday morning, as I stand up to preach, I'm aware that I'm in competition. I'm in competition against the most popular, the most influential, the most powerful preacher in your life. And my greatest challenge is that when you come to listen to me preach, you bring that preacher with you. You, you don't do me the favor of leaving that preacher at home. In fact, you can't leave that preacher at home. Because that preacher is you. You're the most powerful. You're the most listened to. You're the most influential preacher in your life. Paul Tripp says, realize that no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you more than you do. You are constantly preaching some message, some gospel, some truth to yourself. And you do it when I'm preaching. Even while I'm preaching, you're preaching to yourself. You're hearing, you're interpreting, and then you're, you're preaching what you want to hear to yourself in some way. I'm in constant competition. And, and the question I want you and I to consider this morning is, what kind of message are we preaching to ourselves? When you ascend to your own private pulpit and you begin to preach a message to your own self, when you, when you step outside and say, I'm preaching to my soul, what is the message that you bring? And my particular area of interest, as we see in Psalm 42 and 43, is, is what kind of message do you preach to yourself when you're downcast? When your soul is in turmoil? And then you ascend to that private pulpit and you begin to preach truth. You begin to preach information. You begin to preach some message. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not to yourself. What, what is it is in your message at that time? Psalm 42 and 43, as you heard as I read it, it offers us this rare opportunity to eavesdrop onto one man's private preaching. What we do here when we see or read this psalm is we're, we're entering into this recessed private area. And we're, we're eavesdropping in on what this man has to say. We're, we're sitting in the congregation of this man's mind in a, in a time of great turmoil. And we're, we're listening in on the message he privately is preaching to himself. And I want to point out three things. First, the condition of his soul. Secondly, the causes of his condition. And then I want to see how he sings a chorus repetitively through these two psalms. So condition, causes, and then chorus. First, let's look at the condition of his soul. The man carefully uh, selects this opening imagery that we're all familiar with. As the deer pants for a, a flowing stream. 
You're, you're immediately sympathetic, are you not? You see the, the little fawn out in the, in the field. Bambi is out there and it's thirsty. He didn't say, I'm like a, a wild boar out in the field. No, no, he chose something that you immediately would be sympathetic to. As, as this poor little deer, this little fawn, this little gazelle is out there. It's a long way from any kind of water source and, and its tongue is hanging out and you're immediately sympathetic And this man is like this poor deer. He's worn out. If he doesn't find water soon, he's going to perish. So he's desperately, his soul is desperately in thirst for some flowing stream. And as we eavesdrop in on this man's preaching, as, as he comes to his private pulpit, the first thing we learn about this man is that he has a thirsty soul. And he's come to the conclusion that his soul's thirst can only be quenched by God alone. The first and and really the critical first thing that we learn about this man is that he has a thirsty soul. And it seems to me that he's tried to satisfy his thirst at other streams. But he still finds himself thirsty and he's looking, he's, he's searching for the living God. This person who can can finally satisfy this spiritual thirst. Prior to his conversion, the great theologian St. Augustine, he tried to quench this spiritual thirst with a lot of physical solutions. He tried with sexual pleasure, false religion, and academic excellence, to name a few. He, he, he knew he had a thirst And he thought if he could just have one woman after another or any woman that he wanted, that somehow that thirst would go away and it didn't go away. So he chased after one sort of popular false religion after another, thinking, well, that would finally satisfy that thirst. And it it never got satisfied. So then he thought if he could just be the the smartest, the the greatest orator, if I could have the, the most academic accolades, if I could have those things, or if I could have all those three things together, then I could satisfy that thirst. And he was constantly thirsty. Which is why, after his conversion to Christianity in his book, popular book called Confessions, he makes this well-known statement. Thou has made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, we're, we're made for a particular stream. We have a particular spiritual thirst. And God's saying you can try to put a lot of physical solutions on that, and they might temporarily work, but they're not going to be long-lasting. And you might remember in John chapter 4, Jesus meets this thirsty woman at the well. Remember that? The whole conversation is to try to help her see she has a thirst. She doesn't just have a a physical thirst as she comes out to this well. She has a spiritual thirst. And Jesus is trying to uncover this thirst to say, do you see this thirst in your soul? And so he has this long conversation, all of John chapter 4, trying to just basically tell this woman, "I, I see that you have a thirst You know you have a thirst, but do you know what you have a thirst for? And, of course, she thinks she has a thirst that this well, this physical well, could somehow solve. Give me a a drink from this well and I'll never have to come back again, she's thinking. And then Jesus says, well, you know, you've also been trying to dip into a different well to find a, a quench, quench your thirsty soul. 
You've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now isn't your husband. See, you've gone to two different wells. And can't you see that neither one of them are going to satisfy? And so she, he comes to her and says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again. It's fascinating to me, just a few chapters later, there's a great festival in Jerusalem. And, and thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of pilgrims are coming to this festival. And this particular festival is the uh, festival that's wrapped around harvest time. So you might think of it as like Thanksgiving. But this particular festival lasts eight days. So imagine eight days of Thanksgiving. I mean, after like three times back to the refrigerator, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to eat again, right? You feel that? This is an eight-day Thanksgiving. And on the last and the greatest day of the feast, all these thousands of pilgrims, and, and they've had everything they could possibly eat and drink, you can imagine. And at that day, Jesus stands up at that point, and what does He say? Remember what He says? Is anyone thirsty. What an amazing thing to say. Unless he's talking about another kind of thirst. And he realizes these people, they've stuffed themselves with all the world could possibly supply them. And then they're still sitting there saying, but I'm still hungry. And Jesus says, no, if anyone's really thirsty, if they're really hungry for something to, to fill that spiritual void, they've got to come to me. That's where the answer is found. Most of you know that I really love the C.S. Lewis books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And this idea of thirst, Lewis gets to it so well in his fourth book called The Silver Chair. And these two kids are transported into this, uh, this new um, land called Narnia. And one of them's name is Jill. And she runs in for the very first time, the Christ figure, the lion. His name is Aslan. And she's coming towards him because she's thirsty. And Aslan is sitting next to a stream. And he says this, are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then come and drink, said the lion. Oh, may I? Could I? Uh, would you mind going away while I do? <laughs> the lion answered his own, this only by a look and a very low growl. I might as well have asked the whole, a whole mountain to move aside for my personal convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving Jill mad. Well, well, will you at least promise not to do anything to me if I come? I, I make no promise. Jill was thirsty now. She stepped closer and she looked at Aslan and says, Do you eat little girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys. <laughs> Women and men. Kings and emperors. Cities and realms. Then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said Aslan. Oh dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. And Aslan says, 
There is no other stream. There is no other stream. So, so the first thing that we have to recognize ourselves is that we have a thirst. We're built to have a thirst for the Lord. And my question is, is are, are you trying to fill up that? Do you, do you recognize the thirst first? And then if you do, are you trying to fill it up with some sort of physical manifestation? If I, if I can just get my, my degree here, if you're a UNCW student, if I could just finish that four-year degree in six years, then gosh, I could really be successful. If I could just get that first job, if I if I could just whatever it is, if you try to fill that spiritual space with something physical and you find yourself still being being thirsty. It's because there's there's only one person who fills that thirst and his name is Jesus. The second thing we see as we read this, this song, this poem is some of the conditions for this thirst. Notice in verses 2 and 4 and in chapter 43, verse 3, uh, the man somehow has gotten disconnected from the people of God. When shall I come and appear before God? See, see I've somehow gotten disconnected. And I rem- I'm remembering back, I can remember back in verse 4, uh, I can remember when I poured out my soul. I, could, I remember when I went with the throng and the procession. I remember the shouts and the songs of, of praise. But I've somehow gotten disconnected. I, I'm not at your holy hill anymore. When I read through this psalm and just stopped and tried to think about it and, and, and put myself in this man's position, uh, somehow I, I, what I thought of or what I kept imagining is that this man... Uh, wrote his psalm after he turned off his television from the National Geographic Channel. That's, how, that's what I kept imagining, that somehow this man in turmoil, he was sitting and watching his television, he'd seen the National Geographic Channel, seen the poor fawn, the poor deer out there in, in the field all by itself, panting for a drink of water. He's like, yes, that's me. And turn it off and he writes his psalm. Because you can see it. You've all seen the, the nature channel or whatever show it is where, where the poor deer is separated or disconnected from the herd. And whenever you watch the wildlife show, even if you just turn it on, and all you see in your first glimpse is a deer or a gazelle disconnected from the herd, what do you immediately think is going to happen? going to become lunch right you know it why would you show just a deer out by itself it's not all that fascinating until the lion or the cheetahs or whatever in the high grass you're like run run i can see it already you're yelling at the television screen because when you get disconnected you're quickly going to become devoured when you get, get disconnected from the Lord, when you get disconnected from the people of God like this man had become he becomes thirsty And when you become thirsty, you start reaching out for false solutions. When you become disconnected, you're you're only one step away from becoming devoured. And you see how vulnerable this man is in verse 3 and in verse 10. He's hearing these enemies cry out to him, look, where is your God? 
The, the enemies are surrounding this man, whether they're physical enemies or just enemies of his mind. He's in emotional turmoil. And in this emotional turmoil and, and being disconnected, he's hearing this voice. Well, where is God now? I mean, if you're serving a living God, isn't he supposed to show up in these particular difficult moments? What good is it if he only shows up in the good times? He must not be real. It really doesn't matter what you do. He's not paying attention. He doesn't care. Did God really say? See, at that, that moment, at these moments of emotional turmoil, that's when you're most vulnerable. To hearing some false message and saying, that, oh, that's right. So we see one of the causes that he gets disconnected. Well, another cause of his thirst is he begins to hear these voices. Where is your God? And I, I wonder when you're in that particular moment, what message do you preach from your private pulpit to yourself? As I said, you see the emotional turmoil. Verse 3, tears have been my food. Verse 5, my soul is in turmoil. Verse 7, waves have broken over me. Verse 9, I go, I go mourning. In the Hebrew, it, it means I've gone dark. I've just gone dark. I don't know which way to go. I can't figure it out. I've gotten so turned around and twisted up inside. I just have no idea where the light is. And, and these deep emotional, the, the, the swirl of these deep emotions often blind us from seeing the truth. And finally, these, these three low pressure systems, this disconnection, this vulnerability, this emotional tornado collide to create a perfect storm. So that we conclude this 42 verse 9. God has forgotten me. Or verse 30, 43 verse 2. God has rejected me. You have all these things coming at you. And then you just sort of conclude, conclude well I guess God has forgotten. Or maybe worse, he hasn't forgotten. He's just rejected me. Our, our eavesdropping in has, has transported us to the dark interior regions of this man's thirsty soul. And he's asking these fundamental questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, where is he? If there is a God, has he forgotten about me? Or is, at worst, has he rejected me? And I'm guessing, and I won't ask for a show of hands, most people here have lived long enough to visit this interior region. Now, you look fine on the outside, but you've been in this perfect storm. You've had this disconnection. You've had this thirst that's gone dissatisfied because you've tried to satisfy it in some other way. You've had this emotional turmoil in your life. You've been listening to other voices. And my question, as I said, and it's a critical question, is at this moment, when you ascend into the pulpit of your own soul, what is it that you're saying to yourself? What is the message that you're preaching to yourself? And the answer for this man is found in the chorus, which is our last point. 
We see it in verse 5, verse 11, and then at the very end, chapter 43, verse 5. He, he, he sees this thing, he's recognizing it, he's identifying it, and then he preaches to himself. He gets up into his pulpit three different times and he says something to himself. And I want us to specifically note what he says. First of all, just notice that he speaks to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? I'm asking you a question. Paul, I'm coming and I'm asking you a question. I'm stepping outside of myself and I'm analyzing why have you gotten, gotten to this particular position? What's caused you to ask these kinds of questions? Again, Paul Tripp says it so well. You must be committed to persevere in a constant willingness to confront your own heart. You cannot allow yourself to be carried along to whatever your heart is tempted to go. You must be committed to constantly evaluating yourself. And you cannot allow yourself to be carried along to wherever your heart is tempted to go. Despite the lyrics of the popular song, you cannot listen to your heart. Listening to your heart is not a good compass heading to follow. It does not give you a true north indication. A few years ago, I found myself in this perfect storm. I found myself in this emotional turmoil. And and I can vividly remember I was in the first parking space out here to your right near the woods. I was just sitting in my car and I was in this this moment. And I was hearing these kinds of enemies. I was asking these kinds of questions. And I I was drowning. I I was like verse seven. I felt like all of God's breakers had just washed over me. And I just thought he's either forgotten or he's rejected. And what I remember telling a friend who was standing there next to me was what my heart was saying was that it feels like God lured me into a place and then cruelly withdrew to watch it all collapse on me. That's what I felt like. Paul, Paul, you come here. This is the place I want you. And then he got me into that place, a place I really didn't want to be. And then he backed up and watched everything fall on me. Have you ever been in that place? Thankfully, I had a friend there. So thankful. And he said something like this. Paul, I know you feel that way. It's just not true. What what a... What a moment of clarity. Okay, Paul, I'm giving you that you feel this way, but it's not true. You cannot go after that direction. That direction will lead you away from God, lead you in the complete opposite direction. So at that person, somebody ascended a pulpit and said, I hear what you're saying. It's not true. Do not believe that. Hope in God. But so often we don't have that friend who who's standing there. 
while our soul is downcast. So so we have to be the preacher who comes into this private pulpit and, and, and asks and addresses ourselves. Why are you downcast? Why are you giving way to fear? Why are you discouraged? Why are you in a panic? Why? Why, soul? Why are you in this condition? We have to be willing to confront, strongly confront our own emotions. Second point here about this chorus. You have to be willing to address yourself repetitively. You notice it's three, three times in this one song. If you read the psalm, it sort of feels, doesn't, not like, doesn't feel like a roller coaster. He's plunging down. I've been rejected. I've been forgotten. I can't believe. And then he zooms back up with this chorus. Hope in God. He is my God. He is my salvation. Yes, yes, I feel that way. But I think he's forgotten me. And you get, you get in this roller coaster ride. I'm sure many of you have been on that ride. And he has to say, he has to preach this same message again and again to himself. When, when you get into that place, you're going to have to repeat this same message again and again. There was an old commercial. I don't, you probably don't remember it. You shouldn't remember it. It was actually an, an infomercial. And I think it was the, uh, you remember Ronco? Is Ronco still around? But Ronco, they always came up with these things that were really lousy, but they look cool on television. And so one of these things was like an oven of some kind. And they had like a little tagline that you, you, you put your steak or your roast or whatever you wanted in the oven. And then the little tagline was, set it and forget it. It was, it was like magic. You just shoveled in your food. You pushed the button and like you set it and forget it. You come back in two hours, you got, you know, a buffet coming out of your little oven. And they said this a hundred times. Just set it and forget it. It doesn't work this way in, in this song. You can't just say it and forget it. You've got to say it over and over and over again. And when you're in this kind of emotional turmoil, you've got to say it moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day until the clouds finally break. It's not just say, well, I memorized it and I said it and that was it. No, you can't set it and forget it. You've got to say it over and over and over again. I think that's helpful because... When you get into this place and you have to say it over and over again, you can start feeling like you're crazy. Well, let me just say, I f can feel this way. Like, why isn't it taking? I mean, I've said it. I've said it over and over. Yet you've got to say it over and over and over and over. And when you do and the clouds finally break, you realize, well, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm just like this psalmist here. I'm saying it repetitively. And what is he saying? Hope. In God. See, somewhere along this man's timeline, he took his eyes off God. And, and instead of looking at God, he started looking at his current circumstances. And, and when he put his hope in his current circumstances, and enough of the current circumstances didn't come through, then he lost his hope. So again, repetitively, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. No matter what you're facing, no matter the strength of your emo emotional turmoil... No matter how much you can't figure it out, no, no relationship, no loss, no wave is big enough to completely drown out true hope. Because our true hope isn't based on any horizontal circumstance. Our true hope is based on the almighty, all-living, all-knowing, all-sovereign God. 
That's what our hope is based on. And yes, I may be down about my circumstances, but I'm not hoping in my circumstances. I put all my hope in someone who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's where my hope is. And I've got to preach that message from the privacy of my own pulpit again and again and again. Paul, you've put your hope somewhere else. You're right. I did it again. Hope in God. Hope in God. What is your hope connected to this morning? As you stand in your private pulpit, what do you preach to yourself? Listen to how this man concludes his private sermon. Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God because he's my salvation And my God. Why does he say salvation? Hope in God. I will again appraise him. He's my God. But the psalmist is preaching something. He's saying something. He's not just choosing words randomly. And he's preaching to himself. And he's saying, you got to remember this soul that's downcast. You put your hope in God who is your salvation And your God, the psalmist concludes with a a deeply clarifying, a, a deeply reorienting truth. And that is that no matter the taunts of the enemy, no matter the turmoil of my emotions, no matter the the trouble of my current circumstance, there's a deeper trouble that I face. The deepest trouble I face is not horizontal. It's vertical. The, the deepest trouble for my soul is that I'm a sinner and I'm cut off and disconnected from God and I can't rescue myself. That's my deepest trouble. And I'm reminding myself, I'm preaching to myself the gospel. Paul, your biggest trouble is never going to be circumstantial. It's always going to be vertical. And it's a, a situation that you can't possibly change. So you've got to preach to yourself that God has come in and he has rescued your soul from that situation for eternity. And do you see how that reorients yourself to your, your horizontal circumstance? God has, has rescued our souls by his glorious grace. He is our salvation. He is our God. So when I can't solve the problems of my current circumstance... See, I'm a guy, so I want to be a problem fixer. My wife comes to me. She has a problem. What is she going to get from me? This, so, honey, I know. If you do these two easy steps, it's problem solved. It's a joy to be married to me. You could just get all your problems solved. I'm just a fixer. Hey, you come to a problem, let's fix it. But see, I come to situations that, that can't be fixed. Well, okay, then let's at least understand them. (laughs) You're not going to understand all your problems. Any more than you're going to fix all your problems. You're not going to get the answer to your why questions. But I can still have hope because I've placed my hope in someone who does understand. Who's saying, Paul, you know what, let's leave the understanding to me and you just put your hope in me.
you're not going to be able to understand even if I give you the answers. You remember the, the person who, who visited Samson's parents said, you're going to have this child. And the, the, the parents said, well, can the, the visitor, there's probably a, a, a Christ-like uh, event in the Old Testament. And the, the parents say, can you tell us your name? Remember what the, the person said back? Yeah, if I told you, you wouldn't understand. There's things that even if he tells us, you wouldn't understand. You know this, do you not, from, from trying to explain something to a two or three year old. You just say, you know what, you just got to trust me. Even if I could tell you about it, you don't have the capacity to understand. But you do have the capacity to put your hope in a dad who loves you. And that's what the psalmist is saying. I don't get while I'm in this situation always. I don't understand. I don't have the answer. But I can trust in a God who does understand and who promises to bring me all the way home. Because he's my salvation. So Psalm 42, Psalm 43, such a such a great psalm. But it asks this question to you. You're the most powerful. You're the most influential. You're the most popular preacher that you know, because you preach to yourself more than anybody else ever possibly could. And my question is, what is it? The mess? What's the message that you preach to yourself? Is it the gospel? Some other false message. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your grace to send us this psalm. That you would be kind enough to allow us to enter into this uh, inner interior region of this man's soul and eavesdrop in on the message that he preaches to himself and then ask us to evaluate our own message. Lord, I pray for the thirsty souls here. That they would find their their satisfaction in you. Pray for those who are in a perfect storm of turmoil or trouble or turbulence or disconnected or enemies shouting a false message. But that today may be a day they need someone to, to pray for them as I did a few years back. That would they come forward and say, would you just be the person who speaks truth into my soul? Helps me remember to put your hope, put my hope in the Lord. Lord, for the people outside these walls who live without Christ and without hope, may we be the people who bring that to them this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.